Hey, bitches. Wow, that was weird to say. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Um, this is Editing Jamie, just popping in to, uh, first of all, not apologize for the lack of episodes the last few weeks. Jessica and I have enjoyed a nice little summer break. Um, I know we are getting into fall here, but, you know, who's going to split hairs? It is what it is. Um, I'm very, very excited to um, introduce this episode that you're about to listen to here, though. Um, a couple months back, Jess and I had the wonderful opportunity to go up to Sacramento and uh, meet actually live and record in person with um, Mr. Jeffrey Deskovic, a friend of the podcast who has a wonderful story to tell um, that really just kind of gets into the you know, issues that do lie within the criminal justice system. Um, so please enjoy this interview with Jeff. Uh, you know, definitely follow him on Instagram, uh, on socials, keep up with what he's doing. He's doing some great work in uh, justice reform um, and enjoy the podcast. Uh, there will be another episode either out later this week or next week that'll have uh, Jeff's colleagues, uh, Leslie Robinson and Carl Robinson, no relation. Um, I'll have interviews with them as well as um, talking about a game that Jeff helped uh, produce uh, for people that have been um, incarcerated. So again, please enjoy this interview and we will be back soon with our regular content, but we hope that you enjoy this uh, this week instead. Thank you. All right, so we are back, and we are with Mr. Jeffrey. Wow, if I could speak, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Jeffrey Deskovic, um, Esquire. Yes. Um, and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here. <laughs> sure, of course. So, um, uh, so uh, I'm the um, so I'm was uh, wrongfully imprisoned for uh, 16 years for a murder and rape which I did not commit that I was exonerated of through DNA testing uh, mm-hmm. in, in New York. Uh, so I'm the uh, founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which has as its mission frame wrongfully convicted people and pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing that in the first place. Uh, so we've been able to we've been able to get uh, 11 people home that were wrongfully in prison, and we were also able to help pass uh, three laws aimed at preventing uh, wrongful convictions. So videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm an advisory board member of the coalition group It Could Happen to You, and we were able to uh, pass an additional five laws. Oh, wow. So, as a matter of fact, a couple of days ago... Uh, oh, yeah, I saw this on your Instagram. Yes, <laughs> Governor, yeah, Governor Cuomo signed into law the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, so an independent oversight board that can investigate allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, which is super important because the prosecutorial misconduct is a factor that runs through many of the wrongful conviction cases. So right. Past that, and you know, discovery reform, which pertains to sharing information between the defense and the prosecution. I mean, previously, um, evidence and witnesses would be dumped on a defense attorney's desk on the eve of a hearing or eve of a trial. God. So yeah, so we've done that, and then uh, from following our, our success in New York, we've also expanded out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have Pennsylvania. It could happen to you. Uh, and which, by the way, in all three of these chapters I'm going to mention, so myself, uh, the founder of the coalition, Bill Bastic, and one other person were in common to all three groups, and the rest, the rest of the coalition is made up of people that live in, live in that state. So in Pennsylvania, it could happen to you, we were able to help pass uh, automatic expungement. Oh, wow. So you would think that it would go without saying that if somebody's exonerated in court, that yeah. their records should be expunged, right. but it was not so. And so people wow. who were exonerated have, you know, had had problems uh, with respect to uh, getting jobs or mm-hmm. even going for apartments with a record for crimes that they've already been know. proven innocent of. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it really, it really, it really, really is. Uh, so, our just to round out, and I'm going to finish answering who I am, why <laughs> yeah. I'm here. By the way, that was just a little context. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, our goal in New York is, you know, we want to um, get rid of the exceptions to videotaping interrogations. Uh-huh. And in Pennsylvania, our goal now, we're building support for exonerate compensation, calling that PA is one of 14 states that does not have compensation. And we want to have the oversight or prosecutors there. Here in California, uh, again, we want the oversight for the prosecutors. And mm-hmm. we want, we would like to get rid of the death penalty because of the risk of executing somebody innocent, as amongst many many other reasons. Uh, so I'm a, I became an attorney and 
uh, you know, in pursuit of my dream of exonerating others as an attorney. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe perhaps most importantly in a way, I mean, I, I am the co-owner of the Recharge Beyond the Bars reentry game. Mm -hmm. So I'm here because, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's an event, uh, there's, there's, there's an event uh, tonight, you know, and it's part of uh, the Life After Time video series, which will feature, uh, you know, Recharge. And since I co-own the game mm -hmm. and I'm going to be getting an award, I thought it would be much better if I actually come out here to receive it <laughs> yeah. in person rather than the do a two or three minute video appearance, which <laughs> yeah. might or not might not work considering uh, the internet strength of internet and uh, yeah. Zoom. Of course, and technological <laughs> issues sometimes happen. <laughs> yes, and also I think we're all just a little bit over Zoom at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm totally zoomed out. Me yes. too. <laughs> Um, yeah, and um, just for everyone else's edification, uh, we had done a pre-interview with Jeff a few weeks back, and he mentioned he was going to be in town. We said, oh, we live within an hour of Sacramento. So, so you made it happen. Yeah, so here we are, and we're recording in person, because we were going to make this a, a Zoom thing. <laughs> but um, we had the pleasure of being able to do it in person. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. I'm a people person, so I really like to. Us too. I'm happy to do this in person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it seriously could not have worked out any better, and uh, the timing was just too perfect. Yes. Like, the fact that, you know, you had just found out about the award ceremony and, you know, we had had that conversation, it was just... Totally meant to be. Absolutely. Yes. yes. <laughs> truly. Really and truly. So, um, you know, just so that the audience knows, um, let's go ahead and talk about the crime in which you were uh, falsely accused of and convicted for and, sure. you know, kind of how that looked. And yeah. I think how you found out about it, too. I mean, if you knew about it before you started being, you know, interrogated. Right. Such, sure. Yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. All right, so the year was 1989. We're in Peekskill, uh, New York, which is uh, Westchester County, which is the suburbs. It's mm -hmm. uh, ethnically diverse, it's middle, it's middle class. So uh, the victim was a classmate of mine who was in two of my classes as a freshman. One is a sophomore, she knew my name, I knew hers, and mm -hmm. that was kind of the extent of it. We were yeah. not even really on a high buy basis. So yeah. I remember there was an announcement made over the Peekskill High School PA system saying that she was missing and if anybody had any information to go to the guidance unit and, and share. And I remember that night I saw in the, the newspaper, uh, the Evening Star, which was the daily newspaper in Westchester, and it mm -hmm. said teen missing and it had her picture. Mm -hmm. And a couple of days uh, after that, uh, her uh, picture was all, again in the cover of the newspaper, but just saying teen body found. Oh, you no. know, uh, she was uh, yeah, naked from the waist down. Mm -hmm. So I got on the police radar because of two factors. So firstly, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, kind of, I didn't think of it this way then, but I kind of lived a double life growing up. So after school, the apartment complex, where there was a lot of kids that lived there mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and in the surrounding areas, I was kind of like the life of the party in a way. So whatever I would suggest would be what we would do. If we're going to ride bikes, play Monopoly, do video games, play <laughs> yeah. basketball. It was your idea. It was, yeah, usually it was my idea. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. The leader. Yeah, <laughs> right. But after school, that was after school, but that, but in school, different stories. So the kids there were like, like a year or two older than me. I had mm -hmm. skipped a grade when I was much younger, and I suppose it quite a caught up to me in high school. Right. So mm -hmm. they were into organized sports and drinking and party and chasing girls, and, you know, I really wasn't into that. I was into the things that I mentioned yeah. uh, to you. So in the course of the police investigation, some of those students told the police that they might want to speak to me. So I guess the underlying thinking is people that don't fit in commit right. crimes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, second thing is I was a sensitive teenager. This was really mm -hmm. my first brush with death. Mm -hmm. and uh, I had emotional reaction to it and so the police thought it was suspicious that I would be uh, emotional about the death of somebody that I really didn't know um, but on the, that's really not a reason to suspect somebody no. but beyond that uh, I want to point out that there were free mental health services offered to anyone in peak school that wanted it oh, wow. that people processed what had happened yeah. keep in mind that you know murders were pretty rare right. uh, reinforcing factor was they Peekskill Police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. Good Lord. And I had the misfortune of matching that. Yeah. Right. Oh, God. So a couple of other contextual factors. So came from a single-parent household. Mm -hmm. Father was never involved in my life at all. Mm -hmm. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique, where the one officer took on a more aggressive role, the other one pretended 
pretended like he, he was my friend. Mm -hmm. So I began to look up to the officer pretending to be my friend as a, as a father figure. And the other thing was, prior to being a teenager, the career I fantasized about having when I grew up was to be a cop. Mm -hmm. Right. So in all of my interactions with the police, which took place over six weeks, half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect, mm -hmm. and when they would push too hard and I would become frightened and I would want to get away from them, that's, that's when they would switch it up. So Jeff is this junior detective helper theme right. was played up. So uh, it made me, they made me the center of attention. You know, they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me and my opinions were correct. You know, like I was on the team. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they manipulated you. Exactly. Straight up. <laughs> yes. And so, and so eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test. They said, look, we've got some new information. It's in the file. I'm going to share that with you. But you have to, and you'll be more helpful to us once we do. Right. But you have to take and pass this polygraph test. So the next day, instead of going to the high school, I went to the police station for the test. Uh, my mother and grandmother thought I was in school because it mm -hmm. was a school day. Mm -hmm. And they drove me from the city of Peekskill. They drove me across county lines to Putnam County, 40 minutes away by car. So I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. Right. Totally dependent on the cops. Uh, there's, I didn't have an attorney present. Uh, they wasn't giving anything the entire time I was there. They gave me the brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but I didn't understand it. Right. Uh, and But then I thought, well, I'm there to help the police, so what does it matter? But right. Let's just get on with it. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm just here to help out. Like, there's, what? what's the worst that could happen? Exactly right, <laughs> yes. And the polygraphist himself was was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a police officer, never read wow. me my rights. Uh, then he put me in a small room, and he... Uh, gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous yeah. mm -hmm. and then he wired me up literally in the, the machine and mm -hmm. he launched into his third degree tactics and so he um, invaded my personal space he raised his voice at me he kept asking me the same questions over and over again and he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours Jesus. towards the end he said what do you mean you didn't do it you just told me through the test results if you did we just want you to verbally confirm it and so that really shoots my fear to the roof Right. And then a cop pretending to be my friend, he comes to the room and told, tells me that the other officers are going to harm me. He's holding them off. He can't do that any longer. You have to help yourself. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You know, they're not. We're not going to arrest you. Mm -hmm. You're going to just go home. So unethical. Famous being, last words. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking the long term, I was just concerned my yeah. safety. And I was yeah. in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was, that nobody else knew where I was right. either. Yeah, quite large, uh, and then you know he's given me this false promise. He's conveyed a threat, so mm -hmm. I made up, a, decided to make up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of the interrogation. By the time everything was said and done, I collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, uh, crying uncontrollably, and obviously I was arrested. Yeah, I was charged with the murder and rape. That is unbelievable. Um, um, yeah, so you were saying that, you know, they didn't let your, you know, mom or grandma know where you were, and they took you all the way across county lines for questioning, which is already insane. Um, you know, so during all of these, like, interrogation process and all of that, like, be, as you were a minor, you were 16 at the time, um, did they really do anything? Like, did they involve your parents at all, or, you know, your mom, rather, or, you know, was there any sort of parental guidance, or, you know, did they have to sign off on a form? Like, how did that look for you? No, they were not. They were not involved. My mother knew that I spoke to them after the fact the first time. After mm -hmm. that, she didn't want me to speak to them anymore. Um, but again, I was really raised that police officers are our friend, and you know. Plus, you don't quite understand, Mom. They want my help to solve the crime, you know. Except she understood. I was. I was the one who really didn't didn't understand. Um, so that I. I knew that she didn't want me to interact with them, but again, I was 16 years old, and that's really the age where people, people growing up, and you start to push back against authority. Some you want your individuality, and we mm -hmm. think we know better than our parents do right. at that at that at that age. Yeah. So, uh, no, they were not involved, and the police knew that my mother didn't want me to speak to them, and so they hid it from her as well. Uh, oh, wow. I wanted to mention uh, that if you're 16 years old, you are able to speak to the police without without uh, your parents present 
you know, okay. you're able to waive your rights at that. So 16 is like that cutoff. That's 16 is that cutoff. Okay. Correct. Okay. I wasn't sure, like, you know, because um, I'm, you know, semi-familiar with the, um, like, Central Park 5 case, and I know a couple right. of them were, like, pretty young. Yeah. I, I think I want to say they were maybe 14 or 15, while the other ones were, you know, older 16, 17. Um, and I know that there was, you know, a level of, you know, contention when, you know, like, oh, like, my kid can't be here interviewing with you guys without my permission. But I wasn't really sure what that cutoff was. And they're also New York native, so that's why I was, like, a little bit, you know, curious about that. Um, 16 so, still feels like a really young age to be able to be questioned by the police without a parent present. A hundred percent. And by the way, I want to quickly mention, I, I agree with you, but I want to quickly mention also just mm -hmm. that the actually parental involvement um, sometimes makes things worse. Mm -hmm. because, oh, sure. because the cops are able to co-opt the parents and turn the parents into their uh, somebody, a vehicle to, to help coerce like come on johnny just mm -hmm. just tell them what happened they right. wouldn't we wouldn't have right. it here if they didn't you know so you know, definitely true. the best the best thing is really just to ask for a lawyer if you're a parent then you know you should you know you should insist that your child be given be given an attorney and mm -hmm. you know tell them to ask for an attorney mm -hmm. exactly um awesome so you know after you were at this point you know arrested for this crime um, you know, how did that, you know, pre-trial and then the trial experience look? Because yeah. um, I, I know there was some DNA evidence that was involved that was definitely a point of contention in this trial. So, so. The, the, so the DNA evidence did not did not match me. It showed mm -hmm. that semen found in the victim didn't match me. And really, that should have ended the case right there. Right. Absolutely. Um, so when that happened, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. So he suddenly claimed that he forgot that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous so that opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that just because the dna didn't match me didn't mean i was innocent she might have slept with yet another person prior to my murdering and raping her and he, he was able to get away with that because the victim's parents were not coming to court so they had no idea of what was being said about her in the courtroom uh, awful. Yeah, I mean, bad enough she lost her life, but right. then he had to ruin her reputation. Right. And then taking it a step further, he named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. Wow. But he didn't, he, legally you're supposed to, you know, provide a foundation for that. So right. get, let's get a DNA test from him. Right. Let's call him as a witness. Let's I was get some say. verbal <laughs> testimony to that effect. Right. But he didn't do any of that. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. Uh, my that was aggravated by my attorneys basically not defending me right so did you have a public defender I did mm -hmm. and here's how he failed me he didn't put my alibi witness on the stand I was actually playing with a ball when that crime happened mm -hmm. oh my god he never he never cross-examined this medical examiner that was committing this fraud so never challenged him he literally asked him no questions wow oh my never god. explained to the jury significance of the DNA not matching me never used that to argue that that proved the confession was coerced and false. He never should have represented me because of conflict of interest, because mm -hmm. this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim mm -hmm. was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him for a DNA sample. It prevented oh, wow. us from calling him as a witness. Uh, and another aspect of it also was my interrogation was not videotaped. Mm -hmm. There was no audio taped, no signed confession, just the cops word for it. So wow. when they came to court, guess what they left out of their testimony? The threat and the yeah. false promise. Right, of course. So <laughs> why would they? <laughs> with no video or audio, it's your word against their word. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take the stand, but my lawyer would not would not allow me to take the stand. Mm -hmm. So when you're defending a case where there's a false confession, you have to, you have to uh, answer that confession. You have to explain right. that confession. You have to disprove that confession, right. and and bring it all together in your closing argument. Mm -hmm. But he didn't do any of that. He wouldn't allow me to testify. Uh, he sometimes he argued to the jury that the confession never happened at all. At right. other times he argued it happened but was coerced, and at still other times he was arguing that it happened but it was false. So he had to have come across as somebody that yeah. was willing to say Whatever. anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then nice. there, then there was some other really quickly there were some other irregularities about my trial. Mm -hmm. So, firstly, polygraph 
results are not admissible in the court right. because they're unreliable yes. unless both sides agree. Mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. So we did not agree, but the judge allowed the polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the test. Interesting. And he said, oh, well, because this interrogation happened while you were polygraphed, that's why I'm allowing this in. So he allowed him to say that, but stopped my lawyer from questioning him about what methods he used to arrive at his opinion. Mm -hmm. So like the results, so he was called as a witness, yes. as opposed to like the results of the test being like admitted. submitted as evidence. Right. Right. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Wow. Yeah, no, that's um, important. But, yeah. but by allowing him to repeatedly tell the jury that mm -hmm. I failed, I mean, that... That is allowing him to give the results. Right, precisely. Right. And so there was that. Then another thing was the victim's clothes had been admitted in, into evidence. And uh, the jury asked to see her bra. Mm -hmm. And that was important because that intersected with one of the statements of the false confession where I said right. I ripped her bra off. And the jury asked to see it. And we thought that that was a good sign for us because mm -hmm. some bras, the way they're made, you cannot rip it off of the body. Right. And that's when the judge said that the evidence, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors apparently thought it was garbage and so they threw it out. Wow. And so it wasn't available anymore. That's just the most bonkers thing I've... Like, how does that even happen? <laughs> like, how do you lose evidence? Like, key evidence? <laughs> right. And the last thing was the jury sent a note out because they deliberated for like two and a half days. They sent mm -hmm. a note out oh, wow. saying that, asking rather, if we are not able to come up with a verdict, are we going to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday? Mm -hmm. Meaning, will they have to continue to stay in the hotel, you know, no access to television and, yeah. and newspaper no and, and yeah. you know, talking to, really the conversations are even limited with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And the judge said that they were they're going to be sequestered. So I, I've learned many years later that at that point it, it was 11 to 1 there was one holdout juror uh, and uh, they were pressuring him he didn't think I was guilty mm -hmm. uh, but then when that note was sent out uh, he said that increased the level of pressure and they didn't want to be there over the Christmas holiday and that he didn't want to be there either and so he switched his vote from not guilty to guilty uh -uh. simply to get out of there yeah. right and so, so, so many the end, people failed you, really. Yes, and mm -hmm. so the end result of everything was that I was wrongfully convicted of mm -hmm. a murder and rape, and I was given a 15-to-life sentence, despite the judge telling me, maybe you are innocent. I mean, you would think that a judge would find a way to overturn the conviction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, but, there's a lot there that the judge should have been... I mean, as the judge, <laughs> they are that's their job, <laughs> to be, you know, on the lookout for it these things, these issues, the discrepancies, the, I mean, that's just unacceptable. And so I was, and so I was given a 15 to life sentence where I was sent to a men's maximum security prison because I had been charged as an adult and sentenced, sentenced as an adult. Mm -hmm. And that was due to the nature of the crime? That was due to the nature yeah. of the crime, correct. How long um, did that whole trial phase take, like how long was that process? Appro approximately two weeks. Oh, wow. So six weeks of, like, evidence collection and, like, you know, interrogations and all of that. And right. then once you were actually, uh, you know, arrested for the crime, it was another, was it, like, immediately two weeks after that was your trial? No. Or, like, okay, No, it was, it was nearly, it was, yeah, it was quite, it was some time. It, mm -hmm. was, it was nearly a year. Wow. Okay. Okay. Because this happened when you were 16 and then you were sentenced by 17. Correct. Okay. Exactly okay. right. Were, were you in, in jail during that time or did you, were you out on bail? Yeah, I was uh, I got I was bailed out after uh, 35 days, but I was soon institutionalized again. Short, just different kinds. So I thought that so I thought I was going back to my old life when I got bailed out. Right. But there was never going to be any going back to my old life. So they would not allow me to go back to the high school as long as the case was pending. Right. Uh, I was a hated figure throughout. West, definitely in Peekskill, uh, I dare say somewhat throughout the whole county, mm -hmm. you know, so that was it for my friends. And as yeah. for the few that were, did not, you know, did not hate me, I mean, their parents wouldn't allow me to play with, allow them to play with me any longer. Right. Mm -hmm. So everything was over. So I felt like my life was essentially over. Mm -hmm. So I, I made a suicide attempt, which resulted in my being uh, involuntarily hospitalized for six months. Oh, wow. So then at the end of that, I was, so I was really out of that for maybe two or three months before the trial started. Okay. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I was actually just going to say, so basically you were in the court of public opinion for yeah. a whole year yes. in between this time. Was Ex- there a lot yes. of media? There really was. Media? Yeah, there really mm-hmm. was. It was. There was, every time I made a court appearance, there was a uh, guilt presumptive oriented uh, uh, coverage. Yeah. Does that make you, like when you, st- I don't know if you follow like crime cases now. Sure, I do. Um, do you, do you, when you see that, do you, uh, how, like, how do you think about that now? I mean, th- th- this yeah, type I of cringe. Thing, I, I, yeah. I cringe because mm-hmm. I'm aware of, you know, the, preju- the prejudicial impact yeah. of that and how that can impact the jury pool and it can impact uh, the, the verdict. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. say that they're not supposed to know anything about the case, but are they honest about it all the time? Do they not learn about it right. at all? And I, I don't think that that's true all the time. And yeah. I certainly think that that can, uh, while, Sometimes prosecutors are the ones drumming that up. Mm-hmm. I think it's still other times. Uh, I think it's still other times that they are swept up in that, mm-hmm. and I think it can certainly also influence the judge and in what rulings that they make in the course of yeah. the trial. Absolutely. I mean, it's virtually these days impossible to. I mean, especially like with if a case has a lot of interest, public interest, to not hear about something or some aspect of it. Yeah. So in that case, did they actually like? When you said that your you know jurors would have to be held, so were were they like uh, juries from or jurors from another you know area? Did they like bring them in, or is it people that were local? Because you know sometimes when there's like highly publicized cases, they'll bring in a fresh. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they were all they were all from Westchester County. Okay, so you know there's definitely a possibility of and, and a likelihood, quite frankly, of sure you know hearing about some, the case yeah. ahead of time. Pre knowledge, yeah. Knowledge, yes. Okay. Um. So when you let's see, where are we? Um, I guess do, uh, jail. I mean, how? <laughs> I can't imagine. I just well, kind of want to cry even like thinking about being in that position. Well, uh, not even jail. Full on like prison. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. In New York State. In New York yeah. State, yes, yeah. So, um, very, very dangerous there. I mean, there was in Elmira Correctional Facility, it was maybe like three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was a lot of oh. violence that did not involve weapons, there was a lot of gang activity. Uh, I mentioned that you know I had I had the bullseye on my back because mm-hmm. I was there wrongfully in prison for the for the rape so that was always a concern that was right. uh, on my mind. Um, they had system of maintaining order in the prison where if you were found guilty of breaking a prison rule they would keep you in the cell twenty three hours a day and you could take two showers one week three the next rather than showering daily. They would send you food that was three or four days old. You could not go to the commissary, which is where you buy your food products. So you're mm-hmm. totally dependent on the state. And they put you in a small case area with maybe a pull-up bar in it. If you're lucky, when you're on that status, that constituted recreation. Wow. And you could not use the phone on when you're on that status. So there were, you know, there was maybe six or seven times where I was uh, attacked, I was beat up. So I, I was subjected to those sanctions also mm-hmm. because if you defending yourself then that means you obviously were fighting you participated yeah Uh, so then the food was terrible sometimes it was burned sometimes it was uh, not fully cooked at all oh god and so there was that and there was uh, there was a lot of verbal abuse by the guards the prisoners Mm -hmm. and as I mentioned it was a lot of prisoner on prisoner violence and it didn't seem to me like the security or the prison administration had any particular interest in really like eliminating or or reduce greatly reducing that so that was, uh, and I'll quickly mention that, you know, while I tried to utilize the time that I spent there, you know, I got GED, I got the associates, I completed the year towards the bachelor's, but then that silver lining was cut when college education for prisoners was uh, stopped. And while I completed a lot of other vocational trades, the curriculum was obsolete many years ago. Right. And yeah. uh, many of the instructors were simply there to collect the paycheck rather than earnestly trying to teach the prisoners. So. Yeah. It was just horrible in many different uh, ways. Um, so while you were um, incarcerated, so, you know, you have a, attempts at appeals um, to, you know, get out of your situation. Um, how did that go for you? How did that look? Um, and, you know, what, what was that process like for you? Yeah. Sure. So in all, I lost seven appeals. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I went to the appellate division. That's the first appeal. My lawyer argued that uh, I was innocent based on the DNA. So she argued that there was legally insufficient evidence, mm-hmm. prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. She challenged the confession that my, the method I'd been questioned violated my Fifth Amendment right. constitutional right. She 
challenged the polygraphers repeatedly, telling the jury that I failed the polygraph while blocking him yeah. being, being questioned. Mm -hmm. She brought up the issue that the evidence was thrown out. She raised the issue that the judge was biased. And she had two additional uh, legal issues mm -hmm. in it. So the appellate, the, this, the, the appellate division decision, it said that I was free to come and go as I wanted. Even though I'm across county lines, I don't know where I am. I have no right. independent way right. to escape. So they said I was free to come and go as I wanted. So they were ruling that the, the statements were voluntary. Mm -hmm. Then they wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which I don't get because the DNA didn't match me. Right, so. right. <laughs> and then they, they disposed of every other issue in one sentence. They said they looked at the rest of my issues and found them either to be without merit or not preserved for review. Jesus. And they ruled that ruling was five nothing, and it was all downhill mm -hmm. from there. Yeah. So the argument motion was denied in one word, mm -hmm. denied. Uh, the highest court in New York, the New York Court of Appeals, mm -hmm. they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. So I was I lost that way. Mm -hmm. Now that, uh, that's uh, that that's three appeals I lost so far. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I filed in federal court. And because the court court gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure, I was my petition arrived four days too late. Oh my god! And that was determined to be more important than the issues I was raising. Fantastic! Wow! And so I lost that way, and that ruling was um, that ruling. I challenged that ruling at the federal court of appeals. Uh, one of the judges that I remember were, were future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor mm -hmm. and uh, Judge Rosemary Cooler, and they upheld that ruling. And then my lawyer moved to re-argue that ruling against both of those judges, right. and uh, they asking that all the judges on the circuit hear the case and rule on it. And the re-argument motion was denied. And then the U.S. Supreme Court declined to give me permission to appeal to them so I've just lost like seven appeals yeah. just then in 11 years. So once your appeals are over, the only way back in the court is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence right. without, you know, which would probably have led to a different outcome mm -hmm. without, you know, and so I, because I didn't have any money to hire an attorney or investigator, I started writing letters. Mm -hmm. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting responses. Um, and uh, I did go to the parole board where because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, right? you know, they, uh, they turned me down for parole. They ordered me to appear in front of them two years later. And at that point, I, it seemed pretty certain and I felt pretty confident that I was going to die in prison. Right. Because at this point, you, you'd been there for 11, 12 years. Or, or well, well, the appeals were 11. Mm -hmm. And right. I wrote letters for four. And then I went to the parole board in year oh, 15. 15, because that's and when you were then they, Right. And then they said, come back in two, two years. years. So you're coming on up to 17 years at this point. Yeah, yeah. coming up on years 16 and 17. Yes. Yeah, and things are not looking great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, how did of, you like maintain positivity of, to like keep going and trying to appeal? Yeah, so it, so it, uh, the following factors. So, uh, it, firstly, definitely belief in God was one thing. Mm -hmm. Second thing, and I, I was kind of living from appeal to appeal. So I thought that uh, I just needed to hold on for a year or two till the next appeal was decided, which I was right. sure I was going to win. Uh -huh. uh, another thing was uh, I used to go to the law library, and uh -huh. so studying the law, I didn't trust the public defender to represent me. And he was a different yeah, attorney, but still public <laughs> yeah, defender. Yeah. Uh, so I, I so that gave a sense of empowerment. Mm -hmm. I used to collect articles about people who were exonerated, and so that helped me go, continue on inspiration-wise. And mm -hmm. of course, I was scouring uh, kind of what route did they take and who yeah. helped them. Uh, another thing was uh, there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there named Frank Sterling, and mm -hmm. we used to get together uh, every six weeks. Uh, we did that. We kept each other going for thirteen and a half years, uh, and. I'll mention that he, he was exonerated by DNA a couple of years after me. Mm -hmm. So he yeah. wasn't simply <laughs> claiming to be innocent. And I yeah. naively believed him. No, right. He, he I mean, actually I'm sure was. that also happens. But. Right, right. But he actually was innocent. And so it was, uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, another thing was was that, uh, I mean, I, I, I needed to get out of the prison for a couple of hours. So I used to, I used to engage in this elaborate delusion 
-hmm. where when I would play basketball mm -hmm. or play chess or play ping pong, I'd pretend I was a professional player and so was everyone else. But it wasn't really like kids fantasizing on a playground someplace. Right. I, I, it was really, I needed to leave for a couple of hours somehow yeah. and this was the delusion that I mm -hmm. used to make it work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would collect articles of, um, I would collect nature scene pictures and put them on the wall of my, of my cell. Mm -hmm. And um, what else? There was something else. Oh, I, I mean, I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it wasn't listening to sports talk radio. It was like a lifeline yeah. to the out, outdoors. And maybe the last factor I'll mention was that uh, I mean I I actually I placed an ad so one of the so I put a I my I wanted some outside contact because yeah. mm -hmm. you know I, I essentially did the time by myself so I wanted to have like some outside contact and I had the ulterior motive of hoping that at some point in the course of that conversation the what, what was I doing in prison would come up yeah and that would be my case to make my pitch that I'm innocent right. and I need you to help build the bridge between me and the lawyer or investigator than I yeah. need and that because I had read that that it happened in other cases yeah oh, absolutely so I had gotten in trouble for putting an ad in local newspapers a <laughs> couple times by the prison authorities but look it was a choice yeah I'm not gonna always be a good boy and put no ads and just stay in prison for the rest of my right. life hey I'm gonna get out of here <laughs> yeah so another prisoner just suggested that um uh he said why don't you put an ad in the Sacramento Bee He's a local. I mean, I felt comfortable with that because, yeah, yeah, well, I'm pretty damn classic. sure. I'm pretty damn sure that no correctional officer or security uh, in New York is going to be is going to come across the Sacramento Bee out in right. California. <laughs> so I placed the ad there, at, you know, mentioning I'm innocent. I'm looking for a pen pal. DNA doesn't match me. And actually, somebody uh, answered the ad, mm -hmm. oh, wow. and uh, he uh, kept me going. Uh, wow. So he's. California resident um, Scott Kylie is going to be attending the event later. Oh, cool. Very cool. And but he um, wrote me uh, last couple of uh, years, and I mean I was openly asking the stranger that I had no pre-existing relationship with. I was saying, look, should I quit? Should I just give up? I'm never yeah. going to get out of here. Do you think I should just go ahead and commit suicide and be done with all of this? Shit. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he kind of like showed up at the mm -hmm. the right, yeah. uh, right, right point. And so all of those factors together, um, really were how I survived. But even with all those things, mm -hmm. uh, it really was uh, extremely difficult. I, I had to, I had to keep. It wasn't just the loss of freedom, and it wasn't just the physical danger we've talked about, but. Mm -hmm. I also had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, thoughts of suicide. Yeah. Right. So all those, all of those things, and really in the uh, in year uh, fifteen, in year fifteen, and after that, right up to when I was exonerated, that was the point in time that I struggled the most because mm -hmm. at least well, when I was had appeals, I had that hope. I mean, at yeah. some point, the hope was attached to the letters. Yeah. But at the end, but at the but at the end, I didn't have that. So that was the time period that I struggled the most. And again, after a while, uh, just coming up with new ideas, no people to write, yeah. just coming up with new ideas to try, became kind of a challenge in and of itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. So at what point did you? I guess what was the final stages? Like what? Um, how are you released? And and what did that look like? much time sure so one of the letters that I wrote I wrote in care of the I wrote this so there was a book called chicken soup with a prisoner's soul mm -hmm. and it has uh, it has like one chapter from many other books yeah in, in each one of it yeah and uh, I went to the at that point I was going to the general library mm -hmm. in order to find uh, in order to find new ideas of people to write to right. uh, trying to get some uh, trying to get some uh, help so when I I saw the book and I asked the librarian, let me see that book. And I saw on the back of the book that it had contact info for about half of the authors. Oh, wow. So I'm new people to write. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So I, so I, I wrote uh, this uh, book author, uh, Tecla Miller, who, who uh, a chapter of her book, The Warden Wore Pink, was mm -hmm. in that. And I figured, aha, this is a person whose uh, walk of life would have allowed her to have come into contact with somebody or maybe she's likely to in the future. Mm -hmm. So I wrote her a care of the publishing company, but someone at the publishing company instead sent it to Claudia Whitman, who was an investigator. Oh wow. And as soon as I sent her the materials showing that the DNA didn't match me, mm -hmm. she like believed me right away. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and so she she said, look, I live in Maine and I have a house in Colorado, so I can't work on your case directly. But what I could do is I could help you with the networking. Mm-hmm. So she gave me ideas and she tried to get people to take my case. Yeah. One of the ideas proved to be the winning one. She suggested I write the Innocence Project, which is a nonprofit organization in Manhattan that frees prisoners across the country where DNA and evidence could potentially demonstrate innocence mm-hmm. right. where no testing's been done. So I wrote them back in 92, 93, mm-hmm. but remember the DNA had already been tested. Right. So doing testing again, you couldn't do the testing again and then claim it's something new. Right. So that wasn't an option back then. So fast forward to year 15, Claudia told me, well look, the DNA data bank has been, correct, has been created so write them again. So I wrote them. I would not have thought to write them again on my own. Right. Uh, and then she lobbied them to take my case. She got other respected legal entities to lobby them also. That's awesome. And then Maggie Taylor, who's a lawyer now, but she was not a lawyer before, and she was working at the Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. And so the lawyers, again, did not want to take the case because of the pre-existing exclusion. Yeah. So they told her no twice. And she presented it a third time wow. using the data bank as the as the uh, using the data bank as the idea. Yeah. So getting the legal representation was the key. Second Absolutely. thing is um, the former Westchester District Attorney uh, Janine Pirro, who does a commentary on television. Mm-hmm. So she, <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar. <laughs> right. So she was not the DA when I was convicted, but she did take office before my first appeal was decided. So it was her office. Okay. fighting all seven of the appeals and blocking several attempts at getting DNA testing. Mm-hmm. So she left office, her successor allowed me to have the further testing. So that was the second key. And the third key is that uh, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. Mm-hmm. So they took the DNA that already didn't match me, attached it to the data bank, excuse me, entered it into the data bank. Mm-hmm. And it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed mm-hmm. a second victim three and a half years later uh, who was a school teacher and had two children. Oh, wow. So uh, the uh, conviction was overturned uh, September 22nd, 2006 mm-hmm. uh, with the ag- agreement of the district attorney. And then uh, the charges were later dismissed on November 2nd, 2006 on actual innocence grounds. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, is that the point in November, basically, when your attorney, you know, shows up and says, "Hey, you're you're out of here." No, that was uh, uh, that was September twenty first. Okay, okay. I wasn't sure if there was a delay or how you know how that all works. Yeah, so I mean, I, they agreed to the mm-hmm. the reverse the conviction and mm-hmm. that I should be released, but the case was not dismissed, so I had okay. to go back to court November second. Gotcha. So I see. The attorney, so the attorney, I'll tell you the backstory on mm-hmm. that. So the attorney shows up. I, at this point, I'm not in Elmira anymore. I've been transferred to Sing Sing Correctional Facility, mm-hmm. okay. where phrases like you up the river uh, come from, because it's on the Hudson River. Okay. Yes. I've heard it, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, the big, called the big house as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I had been transferred there, and so the, my cell opens, it's September 21st, so my cell opens up, the, uh, you know, and the, uh, the guard yells down, visit! Like, yeah, well, so I go down there and I say, you sure it's me? Because I'm not expecting anyone. And right. they, they yeah. have been known to sometimes let the wrong prisoner out for the, for the visit. I'm sure it happens. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure. Yeah. So uh, he called up there and, con- and confirmed I had a visit. So, you know, I go to my cell and I get the... the... So we, it was kind of like a tradition. You have like a visit shirt, like a good shirt that, uh-huh. you, that you wear. Yeah. It's all you can really do. Yeah. Right. So I'm, yeah. I'm running down, buttoning this shirt up as I rush to the... Uh, to the visiting room, and I remember thinking to myself, like, who, who the heck came to see right. me? Right, yeah. You know, and, and the, you know, so I'm hurrying up because I don't want to get caught outside of the visiting room because it's close to the count being done at 11 o'clock. So when they do the count, uh, wherever you are, you're stuck there. You, you know, so it would cost me a couple of hours. If I was not right. in the visiting room before they started counting, I would be waiting. So I'm hurrying up. And so I come in the visiting room, and this woman that I don't know is waving at me. <laughs> and, uh, and I wave back, but I'm thinking she's either mistaking me for somebody else or maybe she knows me from the visiting room in Elmira. Yeah. So I asked the guard, well, who came to see me? And, and the guard looks at me like I'm nuts and says, well, don't you know who came to see you? 
<laughs> you know, and I so I didn't want the visit to get canceled before right. I even. So like, yeah, uh-huh. so exactly, <laughs> I had pretended. Of course, I know. Yeah, sure. So I walk over to this woman who's yeah. waving because who else am I going to walk over to? Right. <laughs> and she introduces herself as Nina Morrison, my attorney from the mm-hmm. Innocence Project, uh-huh. and she says um, the items have been tested. So I so I said to her, what do, you, what do you mean they've been tested? They're not supposed to be tested for like another month. So I've already lost <laughs> yeah. appeals on, on bizarre technical yeah. things. So I'm on the lookout for anything irregular. Right. So, Can't blame you for that. <laughs> so Girl, I, so you're giving me bad news. Got it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So uh, she, she says, no, no, it's been tested. Um, uh, the re- results match the actual perpetrator. Uh, you're going home tomorrow. <laughs> And I said, no, I'm not. Yeah. And so yeah, go, BS, sure. Yeah, right. So we go back and forth like three times. And then, you know, I have this three and a half hour mental paralysis. So I'm sitting there at the visiting room. Mm-hmm. She's like literally holding my hand. And all these thoughts are running through my head. Yeah. One thought has nothing to do with the next. <laughs> None of it has yeah. anything to do whatsoever with my case. Yeah. And yeah. she's just listening. Shock. Yeah. And she's just listening. And you know, not replying. And every now and then she breaks in and says, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? I'm like, no, no. Look, keep that away from me. No, we're not. I'm not going home tomorrow. We're not talking about that. I can't deal with that. You know, no, no, we're not talking about this. No, it ain't going to happen. So Back uh, to my stream of consciousness about everything else. <laughs> yeah. So eventually what made it real is she said, look, there's about 20 minutes left in the visit. Um, you know, it's almost three o'clock now, and uh, I have to get your uh, shoe size and the size of your suit. And there's a ton of work to do between now and tomorrow with respect to the media, other and other preparation. Yeah. And that's really what made it real. And so I felt better for about five minutes. Yeah. And wow. then, then a different thought, a different concern, mm-hmm. or fear came into my mind, which was, well, something's going to happen. Between now and tomorrow, oh, no. and uh, she's gonna DA's gonna change her mind, and yeah, I'm not she's gonna like, that'd go be part of the course at this point. <laughs> exactly right. Yes. Yeah, so that's how that all went down. Wow. But you were, in fact, released the next day. I was, in fact, thank God, I was, in fact, released the next day. Yes, I was. What was that? I mean, so you know, you you had mentioned earlier, like the technology that what existed then when you were released, and just like how did you acclimate to being out, and, and you know, where did you go? What did you do? Sure. So technology was different. So cell phones, GPS, internet didn't exist before. Culture was different. Uh, cities and towns didn't look the same. The yeah. Same people mm-hmm. didn't live there. Uh, anymore, so it did feel like I was in a parallel world, one that I didn't belong in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I stayed with my aunt for a couple of days. My mother by now had left Peekskill. She had moved to Colbusville, which is in uh, rural upstate New York. Okay. Okay. So after a few days, I went with her up there, but it was so rural there really was no chance to rebuild my life. I mean, right. to give you an idea, bus service was door to door. And and you and you would have to ride in the car for about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So I sounds was, like where they grew up. Yeah, we, yeah, we grew up in a very small town. So uh, so a woman named Leesta Brown, who's um, running actually for Peekskill City Council now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she contacted me through the Innocence Project. She sent a hundred dollars for me to get a train ticket and go back to Peekskill. So I didn't actually know her. But she remembered me. I used to play with her son. Oh, wow. So, you know, but look, this was my chance to get out of this rural place. Yeah. <laughs> so I packed up a little bit He's that out, I had, yeah. and I went down there my, to Peekskill, and my plan was just to visit person to person so I could figure out some kind of some kind of uh, st- st- uh, stability. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, this religious community allowed me to stay there for four months, and then they told me I had 15 days to find someplace oh, else. God. So uh, I was a couple of weeks away from a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mercy, and I quickly learned everybody that I had been meeting. I said, so in peak scale, I mean, you know, people would drive, would see me, they would honk the horn, they'd come up to me, shake hands mm-hmm. with me, and everything like that. And you know, be oh, you ever need anything? And I used to write their names, everything down in the book, and everything. But mm-hmm. it was. It was all a bunch of hot air is what, what yeah. it really was. Well, yeah, and this is the same community that 15 years prior was cursing your name down the street. Exactly So right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, uh, so, but Mercy College had 
uh, the dean at Mercy College uh, had arranged for me to get a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree because it made it into the daily newspaper, a human interest item, mm -hmm. that I was 10 classes short of getting the bachelor's. So they lined yeah. up the scholarship. And so I contacted the school and I said, look, we're going to do the press conference about me starting school. But look, mm -hmm. at this point, I've just lost my temporary housing. Yeah. So I have to make the press conference that I'm about to be homeless. So if anyone's, <laughs> if anyone's a, yeah. is so inclined yeah. to help me, they need to know I have the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it, it, so Mercy College upped the ante. They already had agreed to give me the scholarship and they gave me the meal plan, which was good so I could eat. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, so they uh, they upped the ante and they allowed me to live on their campus. Oh, how cool! Awesome. For six months, and from there, just before the end of uh, graduating, mm -hmm. uh, uh, human I, I found who well, I was introduced to is a better way to put it. Uh, human Development Services of Westchester, and mm -hmm. um, it wasn't. They allowed me to. They their method of doing things was they would rent an apartment for their clients and then their clients would just have to pay them 30% of whatever they made in the course of a month even if that was nothing. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't because I had been wrongfully in prison, it was because I happened to fit the mental health diagnosis of clients that they did that for. Yeah. Okay, so that was how I got some stability of housing. I mean, all in all, it took me uh, about five years before I got any financial compensation. So I was always passed over for gainful employment. <laughs> Technology had passed me by as we mentioned, but it also seemed like None of the employers were willing to have any patients to do on the any on the job training. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it was awkward whenever I would meet up with members of my extended family because I knew who they were from memories when I was young. But yeah. I was a different person now. Uh, so and and, uh, and and so are they. Uh, stigma having been in prison for sixteen years. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was there wrongfully, but you were there. So how much that rub off on you? And yeah. you know that was part of it. And you know it was very lonely as well. Sure. So well, it was who really. Can relate? I mean, yeah. nobody can relate to that unless they have also, but that's, I'm sure that's it's not very common. No, it's, it's few and far between. <laughs> right, and that was also part of the part of the problem in terms of even finding a mental health professionals. Yeah. They were not used to treating somebody uh, like me. So it was five really really. Uh, so it was you know I, I I was I became a weekly columnist for a newspaper, so mm -hmm. I was making money that way. But they only wanted one article a week. Yeah. And I was doing speaking engagements and getting paid for them, but that's not a consistent form of income. Right. So it was, uh, you know, so it was very difficult uh, five years. It was particularly hard for me because, remember, I had been in prison from age 17 to 32. Mm -hmm. So I had never before lived on my own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hadn't had a driver's license. I had never went shopping before. I had never wrote a check. I never balanced a budget. Uh, one time, the Wild. dean of the college uh, took me shopping, and my wow. I, my plan, uh, which I carried out for a while before I finally adjusted enough, was uh, as far as like the cleaning products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would save the empty containers and then bring them with me back to the store, so that I knew how to what to buy. what to buy. Yeah. yeah. So all of those all those challenges were were present, but at the same time, while I was having all of those difficulties. You know, I, I had I was an advocate for about five years. So I mentioned the writing and, and speaking, mm -hmm. but I was also doing the media interviews, yeah. uh, trading privacy for awareness in, in exchange for you know the uh, better awareness of the issues. And I was meeting you know, the elected officials, and I got the the scholarship, finished the bachelor's degree, uh, I got a master's degree from John Jay College mm -hmm. of Criminal Justice. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction, cause and reform, and then. Um, I got the compensation and I decided that you know I wanted to keep doing what I was doing but I wanted to be involved in exonerating people yeah. mm -hmm. so I used a million and a half dollars from what I got to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice and mm -hmm. we have been able to get 11 people home and I mentioned the policy stuff at the beginning so I won't repeat that yeah. but at some point it became not enough for me to mm -hmm. sit in the front row of the courtroom yeah. you know, I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments. Yeah. Hence my foray into law school and I Very as we cool. you know, I'm I'm an attorney and yeah. I entered some of our so the foundation has ten active cases now mm -hmm. and you know, I've entered some of those cases as co counsel. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Um so, um, I guess, do you want to talk a little bit about, more about like what you're doing now and, you know, kind of, you know, actionable things that maybe the listeners can do to help yeah. in support of that? 
Sure. So um, we are. So we're, so I've entered a few of the cases now mm -hmm. as co-counsel. So we're trying to exonerate people. Now there's ten active cases. Uh, there's the policy initiatives that I that I mentioned. So I'm doing that. But I'm also actively, you know, pursuing uh, donors and various awards. I have a cash prize uh, with it. So you know, as and uh, we also have our uh, Patreon campaign. Mm -hmm. So basically, I'm trying to develop the organization further. We're looking mm -hmm. to add additional board members. Looking to add advisory board members, and I'm looking for large donors, medium size, and even small uh, donors. So mm -hmm. basically, we're at capacity right now, mm -hmm. and we have a separate seven cases that are approved that are currently not being worked on because mm -hmm. we can we can only do the ten that we're doing. Right. So you know, we're looking for people to help us to free more innocent people. Uh, so with the Patreon campaign, the idea is this is you know, when it comes to political races, you know, candidates of both parties, whether it's high profile races or presidential races, double digit millions, triple digit millions yeah. mm -hmm. lar raised largely from small dollar donors yeah so my idea was with the patreon page which is designed for people that are willing to be recurring monthly donors what if 25,000 people were willing to uh, sacrifice three to five dollars a month yeah. on a recurring basis to free innocent uh, people so that would give us you know close to a million dollar budget and we would be able to expand our capacity we could hire attorneys investigators paralegals other essential personnel mm -hmm. and we could pursue policy changes in more than just New York, Pennsylvania, California. We could come into three other states and also do something uh, with regards to the federal justice system. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing now. Uh, I'd like to mention that there also is the Amazon Smile program. Mm -hmm. And so if you register for the Jeffrey Deskwick Foundation on Amazon, Amazon will donate a small percentage of your purchase okay. to the organization without it increasing the cost. So I'm looking for that. and always looking for somebody with a higher profile. I mean, imagine somebody with a really large uh, following that made a short video yeah. talking about wrongful conviction, the organization, our track record. Maybe I'll make a brief cameo appearance and we encourage people to donate. Could right. could really be game-changing. Yeah. So look, this is not about me anymore. I'm home, I'm free, mm -hmm. I'm compensated. I work about 50 to 60 hours a week. I don't get paid for that. You know, I uh, yeah. I survive from the whatever I earn on the compensation, so that right. allows me to keep doing the advocacy work. So definitely 100% of whatever is obtained would go to freeing other people. And that's mm -hmm. the whole point of why I started the organization is because I can't forget about the men and women that I metaphorically uh, left behind. Yeah. Many, yeah. many of the innocence organizations, they're what I call DNA-centric. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if there's meaning, if there's no DNA, they won't take the case. Mm -hmm. Right. But DNA is only around in five to twelve percent of all serious felony cases. Mm -hmm. So, most of the cases would not be eligible. And to right. me, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that because if someone's innocent, they're innocent. If you can prove that, you should do it, whether yeah. it's under a microscope or through good old-fashioned boots on the ground investigative work. Yeah, absolutely. Hence, hence having the mission uh, that way. Yeah. Well, we will be sure to link all of those things in um, the episode show notes as well. Yeah, no, that's uh, that awesome. I really do uh, appreciate that. And, you know, I'm, I'm the face of the organization, so mm -hmm. I do a lot of traditional and non-traditional media. Thank God yeah. for new media. We're meeting <laughs> right. right here. Exactly. Yeah, but I feel like that's really opened up, uh, you know, this uh, the platforms that we all have a freedom of speech, but if nobody can hear you, it's limited at your exercise. So uh, I love you know, podcasts and blogs and blog mm -hmm. talk radio, how that's opened up everything for everyone. It's not just the traditional uh, media. So yeah. I do do these interviews and mm -hmm. I do do speaking engagements, you know, across the country and some, some, inter some internationally. I mean, my ultimate dream is to have a chapter in each, each state and in each country because mm -hmm. I see wrongful conviction yeah. as oh, yeah. a worldwide issue in the countries where we don't hear about wrongful conviction. It's not because they're not happening. It's because nobody's working on the cases. Nobody is mm -hmm. being exonerated there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so again, thank you so much for sharing your story and, you know, the work that you're doing. Um, it's awesome. Is there anything else that you want to, you know, mention or? Sure. Yeah. Really quickly. I'd want mm -hmm. to mention, you know, that, uh, I do want to mention recharge. Yeah. Yes. The bars reentry game. And, you know, so, um, you know, it does have a quote from me on the on the, the tin, on the in the front there. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, and uh, my uh, the formerly incarcerated and all who play this game will bond, laugh, and heal. Mm -hmm. So I decided to uh, invest in Recharge. I co-own it. Um, Leslie Robinson, who was a guest previously, mm -hmm. uh, created the game. Uh, but you know, I I was I benefited. I benefited uh, from prisoners that were you know committed crimes that were mm -hmm. incarcerated. Who suggested I write the law library? And, I mean, go to the law library and. You know, who kind of schooled me on, you know, survival tactics, what to do in prison, and mm -hmm. what tried to be good influence. And I've seen a lot of um, people who really have taken their rehabilitation seriously, and they're leading difference-making, crime-free lives. And so, recharge is my way of trying to give back to those prisoners, and, and in honor of other people on parole that are doing good work now in the community, hence my wanting to get involved in Recharge. Uh, I, I use the game a lot myself uh, with my you know, family and my friends. I really wish the tool had been around yeah. when I was first uh, released. Uh, I remember my uh, brother, who's three and a half years younger than me, he mentioned, uh, he said to me one time, it still sticks in my head pretty, pretty vividly, uh, he said, I don't know what to say, I don't know what not to say, mm -hmm. I don't know what to ask, I don't know what not to ask. So Recharge steps in the middle and it removes that awkwardness yeah. by those icebreaker type questions mm -hmm. so that was one thing and the uh, other thing I just wanted to share with people that are, that are listening you know uh, I, I reflect on about my my life and my journey and I think that there's a lot of lessons there uh, well beyond just wrongful conviction or criminal uh, justice reform and you know, speaking of the justice reform, and I'll come right back to that thought. The, the documentary short, uh, Conviction, which yeah. was on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I, I gave it a watch. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, produced by um, Gia Wertz, which has gotten has gotten into 12 uh, documentary festivals and won three awards. So oh, cool. I used my platform there, I mean, just for the other justice reform issues. I mean, the fact that it's about me means wrongful conviction is going to get some play yeah. anyway, just right. in and of itself. But I used the platform there really to shed light on a lot of disturbing things that I saw up close and personal while I was wrongfully imprisoned. Mm -hmm. I mean, I d discussed things like, um, you know, um, people being denied, worthy candidates being repeatedly denied parole even though they have bachelor's degrees and really good disciplinary records and have completed other vocational trades and therapeutic programs. Uh, elderly people in prison whose, whose needs Wrapping up in one minute. Yeah. Just finishing this Lance answer. So things like elderly people in prison with advanced medical with the, with advanced medical needs that the, that the prison simply can't treat, and you know prison reform and absence of college education for prisoners. So I use that platform to bring light to. So I use that platform to really bring light to, to those issues, um, but I think that beyond justice reform and and you know my, uh, wrongful conviction, I, I think that when I reflect on my life. I think that you know there's a generic formula. You know I think that you know uh, when, in whatever whatever uh, extreme adverse situation that mm -hmm. you're that you're in, I think have a goal. Uh, have a have a realistic plan that you can look at you know three or four different ways and feel comfortable with be flexible remember the goal is the goal the plan's not the goal so right. uh, work really hard and never quit and when you can't when you're about to give up and you can't go on anymore just say to yourself that uh, you know if there, maybe this was the key moment and if you'd have kept going you could have had a breakthrough yeah. mm -hmm. and so I just said that to myself and then I keep going anyway just to see what would happen on the other side and when you do make it through then just reach back and help other people in the same position and do some work on the preventative side and I know that that message you know can extend say to people who are homeless or yeah. debilitating illness or a domestic abuse uh, survivor, sexual assault survivor, or you, you name the extreme difficulty, large, small, whatever it applies to all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's inspiring. Thank but you. thank you again mm -hmm. for joining us.
Absolutely. Thank you very much. Of course. And then, again, all the resources and links will be in the description. And we will catch you again next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Editing Jamie, popping back in real quick just to thank you all again for listening to this week's a little bit different episode. And we do really hope that you enjoyed it. And again, please check out Jeff and all of the wonderful things he does. Um, the links will be in the description. Thank you and have a good one. We'll see you next time.